Let's take this time and just uh, open up our hearts and minds and just get ready to um, just learn more about the Lord. Let us pray. Dear Lord, uh, we just uh, thank you for this church and just thank you for everybody that's here. And right now we just pray you just uh, open up their hearts and minds and be receptive to the message and just speak through Phil. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. Danny, you want to bring the lights up just a little bit, the house lights, please? I'm a big fan of idioms. I know a lot of you could say the same thing, and some of you are thinking, did he say idioms? What did he just say there? I I did. I I said I'm a big fan of idioms. But let's make sure we're all on the same page. If you don't remember high school English class and you're not sure what an idiom is, here's a, a pretty good definition. An idiom is a phrase or expression that typically presents a figurative, non-literal meaning attached to the phrase. Now, that's, that's a pretty good definition. It really is. But again, if you're not familiar with idioms or you have forgotten what they really are, it may take you just a little while to see how it works, but it won't take very long at all. This morning, I want to use an idiom to help us understand a passage of Scripture. The idiom that we're going to use is right here. We're going to take a subject and look at this. We're going to turn a belief completely upside down. We're going to take a subject right out of the Bible, right out of life, and we are going to turn our belief about it upside down. Now, when we look at this expression, turn a belief completely upside down, if we really want to explore the meaning of that, then it, it in the most literal of ways means to take the top and put it on the bottom, take the bottom and put it on the top. That's what it means to turn something upside down. And when we take a, an expression and we do that, it means that we just flip it completely over. That's the most literal, formal meaning of this expression. But I don't want us to focus on the literal, formal meaning of that expression. I want us this morning to look at the informal meaning. This one's really interesting. We're going to make something very untidy. To turn something upside down, a belief, an expression, a teaching, when we turn that upside down, The informal meaning of that, the idiom meaning of that, is to make it very untidy. With Solomon's help, we're going to do that this morning. We're going to take a belief out of Scripture, a passage out of Scripture, and we're going to make it very, very untidy, very messy. That's what Solomon did with it. But then prayerfully, with the help of the Holy Spirit in our Bibles, we'll clean it up before we're done. But first, we've got to make it messy. So join me in the book of Ecclesiastes, and I'll show you what I'm talking about. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 1. Wise King Solomon writes these words. The Bible would tell us that he's the wisest man to ever live. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 1. He starts just like this. A good name is better than precious ointment. Now, you might remember that Solomon is the writer of the Proverbs. He wrote the majority of the book of Proverbs, sound bites, if you will, of wisdom, sound bites that direct our hearts and our minds. And that's what he just did with the first part of this passage. A good name is better than precious ointment. Nobody would argue with that. Nobody in Solomon's day or no one today. Nobody would argue with that. A good name is better than precious ointment. But he very quickly 
makes things messy. He makes things untidy. He turns a belief upside down. Listen to what he says next. And the day of death, then the day of birth. Now, if you've been around Libby Christian Church very long at all, you've heard me say that it is necessary for us to read Scripture small and slow. This is one of those times that we need to read it small and slow. If you are reading for speed and distance, you will skip right over what Solomon just did here. And that is tragic because the depth of what happens in the last half of this one verse is absolutely incredible. He turns an entire belief system upside down. In the process of doing that, he makes the subject of death very messy and very untidy for people. Listen again, small and slow, to what he says. And the day of death, then the day of birth. If you are reading small and slow, you will stub your toe on this passage. And when you stub your toe, you will have to go back to the beginning to make it all make sense. So you go back to the beginning, the first proverb that he puts in this verse, and you're going to pull one word out in order to make this make sense. The day of death is better than the day of birth. See how this just becomes untidy? The day of death is better than the day of birth. That's pretty messy. That is pretty messy. Particularly when you think of who he was writing this to. Solomon was a Jew by birth. He was writing to Jewish people. Those were the folks that lived in Jerusalem with him. Those were his people. The book of Ecclesiastes was written to folks with a Jewish heritage. From the beginning of time, Jewish people have been confused about death. It has already been a messy subject for them. It has been an untidy issue that has, in a lot of different ways, divided the Jewish culture. People can't agree within that faith system on what happens after a person dies. In fact, I was really interested this past week to see some of the variations of confusion. So I went to a website, very simple little website called reformjudaism.com. That's exactly where this comes from, reformjudaism.com, to see if I could lift, lift some of the beliefs that the Jewish people have about death right out of their own teaching. So that's why I went here to do this, and I found some intriguing things. Let me show you a few of them. Number one, the Jewish people as a whole believe that there is an afterlife. Now, I say as a whole because not all Jewish people believe that there is an afterlife. If you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about the differences between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees believe in a resurrection in an afterlife. The Sadducees believe that you live, you die, and that's it. So when I say as a whole, I don't mean all people from the Jewish faith believe this, but most do. Most believe that there is an afterlife. Texts from every era in Jewish life identify a world where people go when they die. In the Bible, it's an underworld called Sheol. In the rabbinic tradition, it's known by a number of names, including the school on high. So there's a little bit of confusion. Is it Sheol? Is it the school on high? They haven't completely reconciled all these years later, even for themselves, what happens when we die. 
but most Jewish people believe there is something waiting. Number two, heaven has an open door policy. Heaven is not a gated community. The righteous of any people and any faith have a place in it. Our actions, not our specific beliefs, determine our fate. No concept of hell exists in Judaism. The closest we get is the fate of an apostate, a person who renounces God, faith, and morality in this world, who is said to be cut off from his kin. Now, that's an interesting thing. Most Jewish people believe that there is something waiting in the afterlife, something in regard to reward, but as a whole, they do not believe in a place of punishment or what we know as hell. See some of their confusion? Now, let's go to number three. The afterlife, according to most Jewish people, can take many forms. Professor A.J. Levine expresses this truth most eloquently. Jewish beliefs in the afterlife are as diverse as Judaism itself. From the traditional view, expecting the unity of flesh and spirit in a resurrected body, to the idea that we live on in our children and grandchildren, to a sense of heaven, perhaps with locks and bagels rather than harps and halos. Lot of confusion. Lot of confusion. Here's number four. The afterlife is here on earth. One strand of Jewish thought sees heaven as a transitory place where souls reside after death. They reside there until they reunite with their physical bodies at the time when the Messiah comes. This approach differs from reincarnation since the return to life happens only in the messianic era, not as a regular occurrence as in Hinduism. Craig Riddle earlier this morning was telling me that there's a group of people within the Orthodox Jewish faith that believe that when a person dies, they spend 3,200 years atoning for their sin, being punished for their sin, and then they receive resurrection. There's a lot of confusion within Judaism. And then all of a sudden, Solomon fires off with a statement like this, right in the, the middle of the growth period of Judaism, when they were finding their own faith, when they were establishing their beliefs after the time of the law and the prophets. He says, the day of death is better than the day of birth. He turned everything upside down, and he made it very messy for them. A statement like that was very, very messy. So you can imagine giving all or given all of these things that we just looked at, what a teaching from the wisest king to ever live that hits on these types of points or this one point, what that would do to folks that were already struggling with the idea of their own death and the death of their loved ones. How can the day of death be better than the day of life? If you cannot factor Jesus into this teaching, it will remain untidy. Now, here's the cool thing about Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 1, the last half of it. Now, remember, read small and slow. If you are a, a note taker in your Bible, you may want to draw a line out to the margin of your Bible and write these words, messianic teaching. A lot of scholars believe, a lot of scholars believe that this is a hidden messianic teaching in Scripture, that Solomon was giving a wink to the coming Messiah, that Solomon was nodding his head towards the existence of Jesus. This is a messianic passage. That is the only way that we can clean this thing up. 
Now, when you plug Jesus into his teaching, understanding how messy and untidy this is in the Jewish belief system, when you plug Jesus into the equation, everything changes. In New Testament Christianity, we can understand exactly what Solomon is talking about through passages like this. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8. If you're a Bible mapper, this is one of those passages to make sure that you have highlighted and underlined and in the front cover of your Bible written these words, what happens to a believer when they die? This answers the question for us. 2 Corinthians, or I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8. No, that is not right. I'm going to go to 2 Corinthians. I marked the wrong place in my Bible, sorry. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. When the Apostle Paul teaches that, and you really peel away all the layers of that onion, here's what he's teaching. When you take your last breath on this earth, in the very next moment, your first breath will be taken in heaven. To be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. Because of Jesus, that is possible. Paul would go on in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, and make this statement. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. So if you're Bible mapping, you write 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 8, and then next to that passage, you write Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. Those are the two most pointed verses in all the Bible about what happens to us when we die. For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. I would even write in the margin of my Bible next to Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 1. Apostle Paul wrote that. Here's the fun thing about Paul. Before Jesus, he was Jewish. He was Jewish. But after Jesus, all of the writings that we have of the Apostle Paul are written in light of Christianity. They are written in the light of what Jesus has done for him. And as a result of that, when Paul writes things like he just did in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and Philippians chapter 1, he's dealing with what Solomon taught in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 1. The day of my death is better than the day of my birth. Paul writes with a great expectation of being in the presence of the Lord. When his life is over here, he's looking forward to being with Jesus face to face around the throne of God, worshiping Him. There is an anticipation in Paul's writings where that becomes very, very evident. He's longing for the day that he will be at home with the Lord. A number of Christians live with that exact same longing, understanding what Jesus has done for us as they look at their own impending death. They look forward to the day that they get to be with Him. That is so cool. Yet interestingly, Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter 7 was writing before the time of Christ. He was writing without a personal relationship with the Lord through his son, Jesus Christ. So there has to be a practical application of what he was writing as well as a messianic application. And there is. If you really get into Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and what he was writing, you can see the practical application. You can make it make sense. But then when you lay the Messiah over the top of all these practical things, it multiplies everything that Solomon is teaching times a hundred. Take a look at some of these practical applications. 
The day of birth is the first step into pain and suffering. The day of death is the first day of peace and healing for those forgiven by God. The day of birth is the day of being bombarded by the impact of sin. At our death, we are finally saved from sin. The day of our birth is the day of grand dreams. The day of our death is the end of the reality of life. The day of birth is when the lies start coming. The day of our death is when the truth finally is revealed. So now we can see some practical ways that Paul might, or not, I'm not, sorry, not Paul, that Solomon might be teaching this untidy, messy thing back in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. But like I said, when you lay Jesus over the top of it, it multiplies these things times a hundred and brings hope. Jesus brings hope. He always has. He always has. Even in the face of death, Jesus brings hope. For those that are trying to settle the matter of Jesus, maybe one of the most important things that you can do is take a look at your own death and ask yourself simple questions. What am I hoping for even in my death? Without Jesus, there is no hope. But with Him, with Him, it is magnified over and over and over again to the point that the wisest man to ever live would say that the day of our death because of Christ is better than the day of our birth. Well, when we started this out, I said with Solomon's help, we were going to take an idea and make it really messy. But then with the help of the Holy Spirit and Scripture, we'd try to clean it up. Well, let's see if we can't clean this up. I'll show you how Jesus changes our whole view of death. In order to do that, we have to see what the Bible says about death. I want to make sure that everybody does understand that. So we're going to hit some high points. The Bible says an awful lot about death. It really does. Life and death are the main themes of Scripture, and righteousness is tied into the midst of both of those, life and death. So we can't hit every passage of Scripture that exists in the Bible that speaks of death. We're just going to hit some high points. Now, if you've studied Scripture with me for much time at all, you know that I love the doctrinal approach, theological approach of the law of first mention. Going to the first place where something is mentioned in Scripture and then using it as a springboard. So let's go to the first place that death is mentioned. You don't have to get very far into your Bible to find it. It's Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, verse 19. Now you have to remember that Adam and Eve, when they were created, were created immortal, living in the garden with no end to their lives. They were created to live forever. And then sin entered their lives. And as a result of that, death became a reality for them and for us. So in Genesis chapter 3, verse 19, this is the first time that death is mentioned. God says, By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. First place in all of the Bible that the subject is brought up. From there, we find other passages like this in the book of Job. Job chapter 21, starting in verse 23. One dies in his full vigor, being wholly at ease and secure, his pails full of milk and the marrow of his bones moist. 
Another dies in bitterness of soul, never having tasted of prosperity. They lie down alike in the dust, and the worms cover them. Job actually shows that death is the great equalizer. Doesn't matter how much money you have, you will still face it. Doesn't matter how much you have struggled in life, death is still a reality for you. If you have lived in great prosperity and blessing, okay, death is still a reality for you. If you have struggled and struggled and struggled all your life, okay, death is still a reality for you. The psalmist would say in Psalm chapter 89, verse 48, these words, What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Death is a reality. I like the directness of this, though, by the time we get to the New Testament. Things begin to shift a little bit. The Old Testament tells us that death is a great equalizer, but the New Testament, the New Testament starts to put some hope there for us. But first, it must be direct as well. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Some translations actually say just as it is appointed that man will die once and after that face judgment. There's the direct approach that the New Testament takes. We will all die and we will all face judgment. But listen to this also in the book of Hebrews chapter 2 starting in verse 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Interesting, interesting that the writer of Hebrews would say that Jesus will come and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. What he really means is that people live in fear of death to the point that they are actually paralyzed. They're slaves to that fear until Jesus, until Jesus. Jesus changes that. He addresses that fear. He takes that away. Solomon, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before the time of Christ knew that, and he wrote about it. And he wrote about it in such a way that it could capture everyone's attention, especially those that were confused <coughs> and even afraid. Now that still leaves us wondering what it looks like, how Jesus addresses this, how he changes it. Well, my favorite place to go in order to see that, and it's not only mine, it is many people's favorite place to go, is the Gospel of John. Why don't you join me there? John chapter 11. Verse 1, John 11, verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, the illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going to go there again? 
Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. I love that in the New Testament, that term fallen asleep is applied to the death of Christians. It lessens the blow just a bit. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he had meant taken rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. (laughs) Oh, Thomas. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? She said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. That's how Jesus laid over all the confusion of death, changes it. That's how Jesus changes it from a thing of fear to a thing of anticipation and joy. That's how Jesus makes Solomon's teaching in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 1, tidy and clean again. The day of our death is better than the day of our birth because at the day of our death, Jesus is standing in front of the tomb of every one of his children with these words locked and loaded, Lazarus, come out. 
Every name of every child of God sits on his lips ready for the same thing. Can you imagine the excitement of that moment that when you pass away from this life, Jesus is standing there ready to say, Phil, come out. Come out of this life. Come out of death. Come out of the grave. Come into my presence. The sting of death is gone, Paul would write in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Jesus takes care of all of that with those simple words, come out. Plug in your own name in that. It's powerful. John passes away and Jesus is standing there and says, John, come out. And really it means, John, come in. Come into my presence. Stu, come out and come in. On and on and on it goes. Ken, come out and come in. Mike, come out and come in. Jason, come out. On and on and on it goes. It's so cool, the power of those words and what they do for us. Solomon, all the way back, understood that. God gave him a glimpse of it, and he was able to settle so many things in his life. The book of Ecclesiastes shows that settling, but tucked away right here in chapter 7, verse 1, is this great settled matter for him. Because of Jesus, the day of my death will be better than the day of my birth. No matter how prosperous I have been, no matter how many blessings have rested on me, the day of my death will be better than the day of my birth because of the Messiah. Because of the Messiah. Man, that cleans the whole thing up for us. It cleans the whole thing up for us. Just to hear the words of Jesus, Lazarus, come out. But still, people are unsettled over that. Martha and Mary were unsettled over that. So Jesus said, you just heard these words, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Hmm. We'll come back to that. First, though, we have to address the sting of death when it is not our own, and how we settle that. Thankfully, Jesus showed us a pattern right here in John chapter 11. Even though we can look forward to the day that we stand before the Lord when a loved one passes away, we grieve, and we grieve deeply. So how are we supposed to do that in light of the hope of heaven? in light of being in the presence of the Lord, in light of Jesus, how do we handle our grief? Well, in verse 35 of chapter 11, Jesus shows us what grief looks like. Shortest verse in all the Bible. Jesus wept. As I was preparing for this message, I had somebody on Facebook, a friend of mine, that posted something that just flowed perfectly with what I was preparing. I like how God does that. Sometimes God even uses Facebook. (laughs) Sometimes the devil does too. We'll leave that alone. But this is what she posted. He cried. He knew Lazarus was dead before he got the news. But still, he cried. He knew Lazarus would be alive again in moments. But still, he cried. He knew death here is not forever. He knew eternity in the kingdom would be better. Anyone, or better than anyone else could, yet he wept. 
because this world is full of pain and regret and loss and depression and devastation. He wept because knowing the end of the story doesn't mean you can't cry at the sad parts. And sometimes we have to. The loss of loved ones leaves us with that. And that's okay. That is okay. Even Jesus experienced that loss. He loved Lazarus. When he got word that Lazarus had died, it, it came just like this, the one whom you love has died. John recorded for us that Jesus loved this family, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Lazarus had died, and Jesus wept. Now, there's a lot of reasons that he may have cried, but today, look at it in light of grief. He cried. Jesus wept, and it is okay for us to do the same, to experience that sense of loss. Just don't stay there, because in Christ there is great hope. There is great hope. Solomon knew that. Solomon understood that. Hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus, he settled it in his own heart that because of the Messiah, the day of our death is better than the day of our birth. The question that changes that is the one that Jesus asked in John 11. Here it is again. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. That's how we settle the issue for ourselves. We have to get to the place where we say, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. You have to get to a place where you can declare, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, coming into my life, that I might be with you forever. And when we get there, the matter is settled. The matter is settled because of Jesus. I hope you'll get there. I hope that if you're not yet ready to make that declaration, that you will spend however long it takes thinking about this passage of Scripture, the one that's up here on the screen. Why don't you take a picture of it if you need to? You take a picture of that and ask yourself, have I settled this issue to the point that I can say, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God coming into my world that I might have hope even in the face of death. And maybe, just maybe, when you make that declaration, you will tidy up Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 1. All the messiness of it will go away for you, and you'll be able to say, the day of my death is better than the day of my birth, because I will hear Jesus say, Phil, come out and come in. I want to leave you with that, so let's pray together. Father in heaven, Thank you for coming into this world that you might come into our individual worlds, into our lives, and save us. The fear of death can be no more, have no power in our lives as we look forward to being with you forever. Lord, that's a a promise that is interwoven through all the Bible. 
let it be interwoven through every molecule of who we are. Let it be interwoven in our hearts and our minds. I want to pray especially for those that have not settled that matter. Lord, would you let them get there quickly? Because no matter what we believe about all of this, we have to know that a clock is ticking and we have to make a decision before time runs out. So I pray, Lord, for those that have not yet done that, would you let today be the day of salvation for them? Asking that in Jesus' name, with the promise of Christmas all around us and the great hope that you provide. Amen.